Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, you will hear Super Bowl 58. Remember Patrick Mahomes 11-1-1 against the spread as an underdog. Super Bowl 58 is coming up on Sunday here on The Zone. Coming up right now, Sam McEwen of the Omaha World Herald. Good Tuesday, my friend. Hey, good Tuesday to you, too. Your favorite Rex Burkhead memory would be? Uh, well, you know, the the Jack Hoffman uh, run uh, was memorable. Uh, Rex was part of that. It almost felt like Tino Martinez was, yeah. was as big of a part of that <laughs> as anybody. Um, on the field, we just talked about Rex Burkhead's play. Uh, probably that Iowa game uh, where he had 38 carries and um, and just played incredible. And it was the same with the Michigan State game. Nebraska didn't have a great offense in either game. They really leaned on Rex. And he was such a workhorse in those in those two games. The other one that I really remember, this is going to sound really strange, uh, but in the 2009 Missouri game, Nebraska's down uh, 12 nothing, And I think it was like third and four. And it was a swing pass. Zach Lee throws the ball to Rex Burkhead. He makes the guy miss. Mm-hmm. And they get the first down, and on that drive, they, you know, Zach throws to Niles Paul for the touchdown. And if Rex doesn't make that play, Nebraska doesn't win the game. So the thing that I always would say about Rex that I loved about it is when you needed two yards, he got you three. Mm-hmm. And when you needed three yards, he got you four. And that, to me, is the mark of a great back. It isn't the big, long runs. There's been a lot of backs who have been able to do that. But when you absolutely had to have a yard, Rex could get you two. And that. That uh, that's what I always appreciated about him, and then his successor Amir, who I think learned a lot from Rex, and and honestly was probably a better running back at Nebraska than Rex. But but I don't think I think Amir would say, hey, if if Rex hadn't been there to teach me some of those things, I'm not sure I would have been the player I was. So I think Burkhead was both a mentor and a great player. What at, at what point did you kind of realize? All right, this is we're continuing in the line of some really good running backs here with Rex. I mean, you mentioned even in that Missouri game, maybe it was then, but where he just looked like, okay, this is a guy that you can rely on. This is going to continue the the running back success from what you previously had with Roy Hellu. I mean, was there a moment that kind of where you could just tell, all right, Nebraska's going to be in good hands here in the in the running back room? He came to Nebraska with a ton of hype. Uh, Rex did, and and so he was you know, he was revered right away. Um, I remember uh, Mitch Sherman was working at the World Herald at the time, and he wrote a story. I think he went down and talked to Rex, but he also wrote about Taylor Martinez. The same story it was a neat story because it was both of them that had these huge prep legends in different ways. And, and uh, so Mitch came, I'm sorry, Rex came to Nebraska with a huge um, reputation before he even played a staff. And then he lived up to it. He got hurt uh, that first year, a little banged up. Uh, I think he hurt his foot. Yep. Uh, and so he missed some games. And then when he came back, it was in that Colorado game. And, uh, you know, had a huge carries on that defining drive that sort of put that game away, the 09 Colorado game. Then he goes and he's the Rex cat for the first time mm. in the Holiday Bowl. Yep. And so, like, yeah, I think he kind of knew right away. Uh, he had all the intangibles. And the one thing you just kind of wish 
is that he hadn't gotten hurt in 2012 on that in the first game against uh, Southern Miss, I think it was. If he doesn't get hurt in that game, you know, he, he might have had 17, 1,800 yards. He, he had a Heisman Trophy campaign. It was legitimate. He gets banged up, and he just wasn't quite the same uh, that year until late in the season. So they go play the Capital One Bowl, and, you know, he played really well against Georgia that day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, everybody kind of knew he was going to be the guy when he came in. Uh, that run, you know, in all fairness, started probably with Brandon Jackson back in 06. Uh, and, and, you know, and then Marlon had a great 07 and no question about it, even though the team struggled. Then you had Roy, then you had Rex, yep. uh, then you had Amir, uh, and, and that was sort of the run. And and what people will sometimes overlook is there were other guys that were competing with them that are really good players. Yeah. Aaron Glenn goes on to TCU and has a great career, but he couldn't beat Amir out. Um, you know, Quentin Castile was going to be a great player until he got thrown off the team and uh, so there's all these other things that like they had a lot of good backs all at once and they were competing against each other all the time. And it was sort of an iron sharpens iron kind of kind of scenario. And that's part of what made them all good. It's kind of what Nebraska has been missing in recent years is they just haven't had three or four guys all at once who could make each other better. So let's let's stick with that, because that is I mean, at, at I back you. That's the last great run of I'm handing the baton off to you, handing the baton yeah. off to you of that trio, who in my top 10 running backs at Nebraska, Halu and Amir inside that top 10. So that's we're yeah. looking at a decade since that trio was here, and now we enter this year where you get a transfer from Oregon, and there's a lot of excitement to see what Dadell is going to look like, especially when we get to spring. But you have the veterans, Gabe Irvin and Ramir Johnson, have combined for a little over 1,100 yards in seven combined seasons, and we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out that position. So you talk about some of the guys that that came here and didn't pan out. Do we spend enough time talking about how that position has been maybe mismanaged and not had the best coaches at that position? I mean, you're at a you're at a right. place where you had maybe the greatest running back coach in the history of college football in Frank Solich, but it's been kind of a revolving door it seems in the last decade. Yeah, I think that we've probably not talked quite enough about that. I think that uh there's nothing preventing Nebraska from being what Wisconsin's been at the running back position in the last 15 years. Really nothing. Nothing preventing Iowa either. Iowa's managed to screw it up too, uh, for the most part. Um, there's nothing preventing Nebraska from being that. And and uh, I think some of it is turnover in positions. I think some of it is a, la- is, is a, is a constantly shifting emphasis. Um, you know, the, the time that Scott was here, I thought that they could have nailed that down a little bit more. They had the player in Maurice Washington. And of course that, that fell apart. Um, and I kind of thought it was going to come back, but then it kind of slid by the wayside. And, um, maybe they just didn't land the right player. Um, they made, they had a choice, uh, to, to take Brees Hall and they didn't take him. And, and that was a, probably a mistake. Uh, he goes on to Iowa state and, you know, now he's a, he's a player in the NFL um, that probably was the one miss that you think about recruiting wise that hurt them. Uh, but you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's perhaps something that we've overlooked to some degree, uh, in, in looking at some of the other things. And I, I, I think when Nebraska's back back, they'll have, they'll have a running back who, who everybody kind of looks at and says, yeah, that's, that's the guy. And maybe that'll be Dowdell. That's possible. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's Emma Johnson. Emma Johnson plays awfully hard and, and did not get hurt and seemed to hold up last year, despite not being the biggest guy. 
And you you kind of touched on this, and and I know Gary and I have talked about this before too with you know previous coaching staffs. Has it been maybe more about evaluating the running back out of high school where it's been misevaluated? It, where you know, it, as you mentioned, maybe you're offering the wrong guy. You mentioned the Brees Hall example too. Has that been a bigger part of the story where you know some guys are coming in where they maybe look the part, but maybe if you dig deeper, maybe they were never going to be a good fit. Yeah, I think it's very hard to evaluate that position. Um, it's harder than it used to be because they're not getting as many carries. They're in different contexts in terms of their offenses. Um, again, you have to tip your cap to what Wisconsin's done. I mean, they, they were able to go and get Jonathan Taylor out of New Jersey, and then they went and got Braylon Allen out of New Jersey. You know, that's something where they were able to identify the right player. I think they got Corey Clement out of New Jersey, or maybe he was from the Philadelphia area. So they've done a really nice job of identifying the right players and then developing them. Uh, it's, it's a hard position to assess. You want to talk about the Super Bowl. And, you know, Isaiah Pacheco, to me, I, I love watching this guy. Um, his senior year at Rutgers, he was number 13 in the league in Russia. Uh, and so nobody could have predicted that Isaiah Pacheco would, would end up being better than almost every guy on that list. I, I think Jonathan Taylor's on that list. But, you know, you, you don't always know until they get to the NFL who, who's really, really good mm-hmm. and, and who isn't. And so some of it is Nebraska's missed a little bit on evaluation, but it's hard. It's, it's a hard position to assess. Um, and, and you need to find not only a guy with the right mindset, but a guy that's got, you know, incredible talent too. Yeah. Um, yeah, it pains me, uh, did not pain me to watch the chiefs win the AFC championship game, but it pained me to know that the two top running backs in that game are Rutgers guys, Gus Edwards and Isaiah Pacheco. I mean, how, how does that happen? Especially when you look at it from the Nebraska lens. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah, it's it, it's certainly it's certainly notable uh, that that, and I think Edwards landed there after he was at Miami. He yeah. played at Nebraska uh, in 2014 mm-hmm. um, when he when he was with Miami. Um, so yeah, I mean, it it happens. It it just it just happens. It's uh, it's people are surprised by the players that sometimes emerge, uh, you know, and and become become really good and in the NFL. I mean, that, that, that happens sometimes. It's kind of, it's kind of fun to, it's kind of fun to regard. Um, <laughs> you're not always, you're always surprised. So Nebraska's got to find a way to get back on that list though. And I do think Matt rule is committed to that. I, I, I think it, but you got to get the right guy. And, and I, again, maybe Dowdell is that player. Uh, he certainly is going to have every opportunity uh, to earn playing time um, because I don't know what Gabe Irvin's health level is going to be. So I think Dowdell is going to get a real look in the spring. Okay, so you you might have right there just answered my next question. If I gave you two players who you think will have a, a bigger role in this offense going forward between Ramir and Gabe Irvin, who do you, just on this day, and obviously things could change as we get into spring ball and whatnot, but on this day, who do you think would have the, the bigger role in the offense? Even still, I would say probably Gabe. Um, you know, I, it's hard to assess. Ramir can be very valuable in some, some certain context. It's just... I don't know that you can put them on the field a ton because of the wear and tear. So, you know, it's it's hard to know which one of those is going to be healthy. It could still be that Gabe is Gabe is the player that uh, that moves forward. I I think Emmett Johnson can do many of the things that mm-hmm. Ramir Johnson can do. So uh, we'll we'll see how they all. I mean, we're in a new world. You know, we're in an mm-hmm. NIL world with you know with uh, in kind payments and things like that. 
there's so many players on the team now that, you know, there's guys that you're like, I want to use you in this specific context. I, I don't know that Ramir Johnson in an 85 scholarship world is still, you know, uh, yeah. part of that 85, but he part of whatever you want to call what they're doing now. I think he is. And, and, uh, you know, they'll find, they'll find some small role for him. I think he's still a good kick return. Uh, Sam McCune of the world Herald joining us. Uh, so, uh, you kind of touched on the future. So everybody's taking control of their future in college football. The Big Ten, the SEC, players. We see what happened at Dartmouth yesterday. I'm going to give you some control because I, I think you have an interesting viewpoint of this. If, if, I, if I put you in charge of college football, give me a couple of things that you would change right now for the better of the sport so we don't just have a total collapse here in the next couple of years. I think if you're allowing me to collectively bargain so that, you know, the players and the, and the, the administrative side can agree on something, it would probably be limits on transferring. Um, I think you would, you would maybe get one where you're allowed immediate eligibility, but everything after that to sit out. And that'd probably be the area where I think coaches would agree to be like, listen, we can't, we can't keep doing this where, you know, we have a situation where we don't know, you know, if a guy that's been really good for us um, for two years and he's already transferred to us is going to leave again. I, I think, you know, finding a way to figure out the transfer situation, whether you got to stay somewhere for two years before you can transfer for free eligibility, you know, so on and so forth. Because I think a lot of coaches are like, what's the point? You know, we just have to recruit these kids and assume that 12 of them are going to leave because we, we don't think we're going to keep them. So there's one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another one, and this is me, I don't know if coaches would all agree with this. I would institute an early uh, signing period in the summer. Uh, and so I would have a signing period in the summer where you're able to sign uh, X number of high school recruits and as many as you want. Um, but those guys are then off the table and nobody has to recruit them anymore. They've already made their decision. It's not going to be a huge number for each team. It's probably going to be 12 or or 11, or whatever it is. But then, everyone else waits until February. And so, you sign however many you really want to sign, uh, maybe in, like, July, and then everybody else is February, and then your transfer portal period just becomes a little bit easier to manage. And and I think, I think uh, I don't know if coaches would love that, but I don't like the system the way it is, where you're, you're making, I mean, February's pointless for the most part, and it would be better... If in December they don't have to worry about you know high school recruits or mm-hmm. especially the guys they really want, uh, they could just you know figure out the portal piece. Uh, I think that's probably fair. I'd probably go to five years of eligibility. That may happen anyway. Um, the the one question, and I'm still working through this. I'm going to write sort of a commentary on it, but also kind of a reported piece. Is I'm not really sure how you're going to be able to tell athletes that they have to leave. If you, if you get, if you get to the point and, and this may have, this may, there may be a peer pressure element in football and men's basketball where like, everybody's like, dude, you got to go. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. may happen. I don't, but it may not too. Like, you know, I, I, there, there are offensive linemen who are not going to play in the NFL. It just doesn't make any difference what they do. Cause they're just not big enough, but they could play nine years at college football and be good. And make money, and I, I don't know where I don't know where you're going to be able to tell these athletes. Look, um, you're an employee, and as an employee, you have to voluntarily sever your 
your employment with us after after four seasons. I mean, I don't I don't really see it. And then in the other sports, not football and men's basketball, I really don't see it because you're not going to convince me that you know some volleyball player is going to make it, it would prefer to go play in you know Europe. And maybe this PBF league will change this, but I, you're not going to make convince me that they'd rather go play overseas than play eight years in college and get a, an advanced, even a PhD while they do it. So that's something they're going to have to figure out because some smart person, maybe from Dartmouth is going to say, you know, I, I don't really understand why we have to walk away from this just because we got a degree or because you set these arbitrary eligibility limits. And I'm not sure what court would agree. Um, with arbitrary eligibility limits out of anything other than, you know, uh, caprice, you know, capriciousness, uh, which, yeah. you know, maybe in our re- regulatory environment, that will happen. Or they're just like, yeah, we, you're probably right, but we don't want to completely destroy college sports. So four years for you. I, I, you know, I don't know how it's going to work, but that would be something I would change in sports too, is I'd set the eligibility limit high enough to where nobody comes back and says, well, Hey, wait a minute. So either five or six years, I'd, I try to find a way to, to keep that number reasonable. What do you think happens with the Big Ten and the SEC getting together? I don't know. I wish I had a, a more thoughtful answer. I, I don't really know exactly what they're going to do um, other than uh, they're going to you know maybe uh, create some sort of Super League or band together and figure out, hey, maybe we you know the two of us can, can do X, Y, and Z. Uh, what are we at, 34 teams? In those two leagues, mm-hmm. um, you know what what would that look like to have a thirty four team league and just you know band together, just in football, everything else, just keep doing what you're doing. Um, and that's that's a, that's entirely entirely possible. Uh, there are people within media, sports media, and within sports administration. I really love the idea of this you know promotion and relegation thing they have in Europe. Um, which I've learned more about as Duncan McGuire has gone through the saga he's gone through the last week. And so, um, which is unfortunate for him. Uh, you know, you can see, I don't know exactly what they, what they want to do. They're, they're tight lipped about it. I'll say this, that, that I was talking to Trev Albers last week and, and he knew it was coming. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say much about it. Like it was like, it's like so. What? So what's going? You know, I don't want to talk about. It. Like I don't know that they know yet exactly mm-hmm. what they want to do, but I think they want to try to to figure out some solutions because it's you know Sankey's gone to, to gone to Capitol Hill, and I think he's under the impression Congress is not going to step in here and resolve mm-hmm. this. And I and and I think I think that's right. I don't think Congress is no. is going to do that. No, it's it's so. too. It's too long that people in charge have had their head in the sand, and now it's coming yep. to fruition. When you have a place like Dartmouth yesterday, they don't even offer athletic scholarships. Are are doing what they did? I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's been a bad week for the NCAA, but this just it feels like the tipping point of where we're going to go with yeah. college athletics and college football and all the money in general. No question, and and again, I I you know it wasn't a good week for the NCAA. Um. I, I don't know if the Dartmouth athletes know what they're doing. I, I, again, I don't know if, if, if anyone realizes the Pandora's box that can be opened here. Yeah. I think there's a fun idea involved with like sticking it to the man and saying, Hey, we're employees. You got to treat us like Swansea. But again, it opens up these questions that nobody's really prepared to answer, which is like eligibility limits. Like, wh- what do you mean? 
You know, a, a pipe fitter doesn't have to leave his job after four years. So, like, it's there's so many things that could topple over very quickly. And I'm not trying to be like a great defender of the NCAA, but they didn't think through, okay, you want to take the institution apart. I understand that, but nobody really wants to take the institution apart for anything other than two sports. And there's risk in this. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of athletes that have a lot of incredible opportunities um, due to the formation of the NCAA that don't play football and men's basketball. And, and, They've got to figure out how to how to take those two sports and make them what they need to be, while simultaneously protecting uh, many of the sports I cover yeah. that, that don't make any money. And like you know, I mean, college baseball doesn't make any money outside of LSU and maybe one other school. So we can't we can't treat that like we do football. So I, we've got to find a way to the College World Series is beautiful is a great event yeah. and it's it's well run and like. So on some level, there just seems to be a kind of uh, thought process that that seems to be very anti-NCAA, and that's fine. But I just see the good things that the NCAA does in every other sport but those two, and it feels like we're going to throw the you know the baby out with the bathwater. Yep, I agree. Sam, good conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you, my man. All right, take care. Yep, so everybody taking control of their future, whether you be conferences, whether you be conferences that don't have football. Like, what are the Big East thinking? Where's the Big East place at the table? They don't have a football. Right. Okay. They're going against the Big Ten and the SEC, but yet they got a really good basketball conference. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's I think it's really really scary. But it's everybody right now has realized in the year 2024, the year of our, what is it, the dragon or whatever it is. I thought it was pig. Okay. Well, uh, I'll find out. Uh, That's something. Is is the athletes are trying to take control of their future? Yep. The universities are trying to take control of their future. The conferences are trying to take control of their future. That's dragging. And the NCAA can't predict the future. No. But I, so long, the head, your head is in the sand. Yes, that's And the all of a sudden you point. go, whoa. Yep. And you're asking for a Hail Mary from Congress? Right. Get the F out of here. Right. Okay? You, you've been kicking that can down the road for so long and almost naive to the point that you're going to face the eventual reality of what we're now looking into where by the time you're ready to acknowledge the the modern day issues that college athletics have, it's too late. And now you've got everybody I, I agree. I, I think there's I think there's banding together. That makes sense of the Big Ten SEC. That makes sense. Uh, you bring up the Big East. Are they what, what's what's their next move as far as are, are they looking for allies? Are, OK, OK, if we're going to be an NCAA ran you know, product as far as the basketball product, do we need to align ourselves with other conferences when it comes to that? Like the Big 12, do, you know, do we need to maybe all of a sudden start looking at a a, a pro type of basketball uh, model that's going to work for our basketball product too? Can that work under the NCAA? Because I'm with Sam, the NCAA does some good things when it comes to running championship events. It's great, but their biggest failure is what we are now faced with when it comes to college football. All right, it's NFL light. We might be going to the NFC and the AFC in college athletics. Mm-hmm. Workman's comp. Let's think about that. That could be an issue. People we could be talking warned. about workman's comp. Yeah. Uh, I, I know, closely watched the Dartmouth thing. Uh, again, a place that does not offer athletic scholarships is wanting to unionize. Workman's comp could be a discussion point. That's wild. All right. Uh, when we uh, come back, uh, we'll uh, catch up here. We're a little past uh, break time. A little bit later, Brian Christofferson will uh, stop by. Uh, If you missed it this morning, uh, Kansas State, be better. 
I know you beat KU last night, but you did not move into quad one <laughs> territory. Uh, Nebraska is still 52 in the uh, net yeah. ahead of their game tomorrow night against uh, Northwestern. We're back with more after this on 1620 The Zone.